If you would, please open up your Bibles uh, to 1 Thessalonians. If you're here for the first time with us, we welcome you in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, here or online, and we're just thankful that you're joining us and, and, uh, and uh, desiring to come and to listen, to hear what the Lord has for you through his word. We are coming to an end here of the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to take the first 11 verses uh, this week, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to finish up chapter 5 at another time. But here we have uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to pick up here and follow along as I read the first 11 verses. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and hope, and as and as a helmet, the hope, I'm sorry, let me refer to verse 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So when we take a look at these first 11 verses, let me remind you, if you're just joining us, or if you have been, let me just summarize slightly, which I think is important, about a Christian life from last week in chapter 4. Now, if you remember in chapter 4, a Christian life is a one a life of desiring for a more dedicated Christian life. That you're no longer satisfied with the peripheral Christian life. That you just say it when it seems to be convenient or you say it because you're around uh, that Sunday morning. But after Sunday you don't even pretend or even act or even want to be identified as being a Christian. Because it's too difficult in your workplace. Or it's too difficult to live that life in your family. Or is that too difficult to, for the neighborhoods? Or whatever it is that you rationalize, why you don't allow your light of your Christian life to beam out completely in full force and, uh, uh, to the community around you and sharing the gospel. Whatever it is that's hindering you, I pray as you continue to study the word of God that you are not going to be condemned by the enemy, but you're going to be inspired by God, the spirit of God that lives within you because you're walking in spirit and, and in truth. And that will inspire you to go out and tell the good news of this world that is falling apart in front of us as we watch the news and we watch what's going on and the inhumanity that is happening in the way they treat people. 
That is not how a Christian lives. And so we want to be stand out as we see the scriptures. We live differently. And today we will see it in the scriptures. We are to live differently. It should be just like day and night. It should be like a day and night moment when they look at your life and you go, wow, you're so different from the rest of the world and how they think and how they act and what they do and how they behave. You're actually human. You actually care for one another. You care for what the, what's happening for other people. You're not allowing divisions to come. And we learned last week we wanted a desire for more, that God wants a more uh, holiness in our life. So the question is, a Christian life, do we desire more holiness? We saw that in the very first part of chapter 4. Why? Because our body belongs to God. He purchased our life. And his will is that you and I have and live this holy purpose that he gives us. Period. And that Christ purchased our body. We see that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. And that the Spirit dwells in your body as a believer. The Spirit of God dwells within you, my brothers and sisters. And the Father had called you to holy living. And the Spirit is going to remind you to live this holy life. And to disobey this, this, this Spirit-led life will bring great penalties to us if we do not. Not only do we need to desire more holiness, but we need to have the desire for more love. That you and I are taught to love. By who? Who teaches us to love? The Father teaches us to love. We see that in 1 John 4, 19. The Son teaches us to love. John 13, 34. The Spirit teaches us to love. The Romans 5, 5. So certainly love is one mark of a true believer. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. And if you're not seeing the love coming from your life or from that person's life, you must be aware. There should be a consistent love. I'm not saying you have a perfect love. You've been given a perfect love, but you're working out your salvation. You're working out this new life in Christ. And love should be bearing your fruit out of your life more consistently daily and weekly and monthly and yearly than it had in the past. But do you have that desire for more love? Do you have a desire for more quietness in, your in our walk that we learned last week? Because we expect the Lord to return any day and let us not get distracted nor become distant with our relationship with God. We must live a more quiet and content life. And we, lastly, we learned we need to desire more hope. Christians sorrow because God has made us to weep. Weeping is good. But it is not the hopeless sorrow of the world has. Jesus is coming, my brothers and sisters. He's coming back for us. That is not a question. That is a fact. And it is going to happen. We just don't know when that's going to happen. And that means there is a greater reunion with loved ones and an eternal rejoicing with our Lord. So how can you not be rejoicing every day knowing that, yes, the world is falling apart. Yes, we know these this because the, world, the Bible tells us so. But our, turn our minds away from what is being falling apart and focus our attention on what? Or but who? Our return of our Savior for you and for me. 
That is, should be great hope for you and I. Because now we see in chapter 5, in this part of the writing of this section of the letter here, Paul is going to now move into the subject of encouraging you and me and to comfort you as a believer to live holy lives in the midst of this crazy pagan surroundings we live ourselves in. And that he's going to make in chapter, this first part of chapter 5, He's going to show a contrast between believers and non-believers very clearly. Let's find out what he has for us here. Verse 1, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. So the Thessalonians here were well taught by Paul. Even though it was only for about three weeks before Paul was ousted out, those, those teachings, they held on to every single syllable that that man was saying. It was like a breath of air, fresh air to the lungs that have been polluted. It's food that they have not been eating, and there's food finally they've been able to partake of. They've been thirsty, and they've been so dry, and now they're able to hang on to every single word that he had because it gave them life. You don't forget those conversations. You don't forget those conversations. Because it was life. They were given life. By the Spirit of God. And it came, the power that came from Paul's words were God's words. And it gave life. And you hold on to those. It's not just some, oh, here we go again. There we go, speaking about it again. And you wonder why you're not growing. You wonder why you're not maturing. You wonder why you're making the same mistakes over and over and over and over. And you can't shake it. These people, Paul is saying, brethren, you were holding on to this. There's nothing for me to write to you concerning these things because I've taught you the, what it looks like during this time when the Lord will come back. The times, plural, and the seasons, plural. It's not a singular moment. It's a times and seasons regarding the return of Jesus Christ. This is very prophetic. It's, this is what's going to happen, and it will happen. There's no question in their minds, these believers back then, and there should be no question in our minds today that this is going to happen, that Jesus is going to return for his church, for his bride. There's no question about it. Because it's prophetic. And we couldn't can discern, he says, you're going to be able to discern the seasons of the present culture. That's going to be what it's going to be like when I, he does return. And again, we are impressed that Paul, in such a short period of time, Paul was able to get across so much information, which tells me, and should tell you, that it wasn't for just an hour and they were complaining the fact that he talked for an hour. They must have spent day and night until they just barely got enough sleep because three weeks was not enough time. To get around talking about the times and season and the rapture and who Jesus Christ and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I mean, that was three hours and that's it? No, I guarantee you they were spending time with them constantly listening to every word that he said. And those words were not Paul's words. Those were the words that God gave him. He taught them about the prophetic times and seasons regarding the return of Jesus. And Paul would be shocked today 
absolutely shocked today to hear that people who consider themselves Christians do not want to hear, and I think this teaching of the return of Jesus is absolutely of no concern for them. Paul would be shocked. But that's what we're dealing with today. Majority, I believe, out there do not want to hear about the return of Jesus Christ. It completely messes their 10-year plan up. They're bucketless. Name it, whatever you call it. But that is a challenge for you and I today because Jesus criticized the religious leaders of his day because they would not listen and be discerned the signs of the times, Matthew 16, 1 through 3. So here's Jesus criticizing religious leaders because they weren't even aware of what God had said in the scripture. And they taught it. We should also study the scriptures. We should look to the world around us so we are aware of the times and the seasons that God describes. It would be like when the day when he returns for his bride. It's so important that you and I understand that God has ordained times and seasons for the nations on this earth and particularly Israel. And that all will be accumulated, all coming together to a terrible time that we call, or the scripture calls, the day of the Lord. Verse 2, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. This phrase, the, uh, the day of the Lord, is seen or mentioned 23 times in the Old Testament and New Testament. Paul is quoting very familiar scriptures that they would have known from the Old Testament. And the idea around that Old Testament behind the phrase, the day of the Lord, is that the, it is God's time and he is coming to, do, to, to capitalize on that time. There was a time for man. Man had his day. Jesus, the Lord, had his day. But God is going to have his day. It's in the scripture. The day of the Lord is fulfilled with Jesus' judging the earth and returning in glory, period. That's what the day of the Lord means. This day is a period of time. It's not a just one moment, but it's a period of time when God dramatically intervenes and changes the course of human affairs in all we, are, we know it today. The day of the Lord is a future period of time in which God will work at the basis of world affairs directly, clearly, dramatically since he has been when he was here on this earth during his earthly ministry. He'll become very apparent of what he's going to be doing. It, this, the day of the Lord does not refer to a single day. It, but times and seasons here, Paul says, plural. When God rapidly advances his agenda to the end of the age. So when does this happen? This day begins immediately after the rapture of the church and ends with the conclusion of the millennium. That period of time is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord marks the day when God intervenes in history to judge his enemies and deliver his people and establishes his kingdom. The day of the Lord. Another term for the day of the Lord we see in Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7. 
And it's the time of period they call the time of Jacob's trouble. This day is a major theme of prophecy that will be fulfilled and is referred to also very generically by many as tribulation. It will be the period of tribulation. But if you want to go back and see the full expositional teaching on that, read for yourself Revelations chapter 6 through chapter 19. And Paul says to you yourselves perfectly know what the day of the Lord is and when it will come. It will be like a thief in the night. You will not know the day or the hour when Jesus comes back for his bride. When that rapture happens and ushers in the day of the Lord for the next period of time after the rapture, you will not be like a thief in the night. In the night. So these Thessalonians knew and had been taught this. They couldn't know the day of Jesus' return. They just knew that he would return. That day would remind me, be reminded over and over daily because they were waiting for the anticipation of their Lord to come back. And like a thief, a thief never tells you when he's showing up at your doorstep. But that doesn't stop you from preparing and waiting to make sure. Making sure your life is in order. Because he is coming back. Our Lord used this imagery of the thief in the night in his own teaching while he was here in Matthew 24, verses 42 and 43, and Luke 12, 35 and 40. Now some take this idea of the, Lord, uh, the day of the Lord uh, as comes as a thief in the night to mean that nothing can or should be known about God's prophetic plan for the future. Well, if it's a thief in the night, then I don't need to worry about it. There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing that I want to even talk about. I just don't even think about it. I don't think about a thief coming to my house every night. Then why do you lock your doors when you leave the house? Or lock your car doors when you're at the Walmart? Where you're at the picnic and you're at the, at the shore and you said, let's go out in the water and let's just, you're going to leave your stuff just laying out there, your purse and your wallets and keys and you're just going to lay the, just your, your cell phone, you're going to lay it out there? No. It doesn't grip you. It doesn't, it doesn't paralyze you of fear. Just like. You know, some people say, well, we don't need to even think about this God's prophetic plan for the future. But Paul indicated that they definitely knew that the time and the seasons, what would be taking place. So Paul taught it. They understood it. We need to also understand this. Paul wasn't about, and he knew he was never going to set a date and time regarding this prophecy. Jesus forbid anyone to set a time or a time or date of Jesus' return. He said that in Matthew 24, 36. He says, of the day and the hour, no one knows. So anyone out there who's teaching and says, here's the date and time when Jesus is returning, is, false, is a false prophet. Don't listen to that person. 
Don't even get around that person. Don't associate with that person because that is false teaching. They're going to mislead you. Because Jesus said it himself. Paul even said, do, do not, you're not, we don't know the time. We don't know the dates. We just know there's a seasons and, uh, and, and times that will come that will be. God wants this day to be unexpected. God designed it to be unexpected, but he wants his people to be prepared for the unexpected. It keeps you and I on our toes. It reminds us, oh, wait a minute. Jesus has returned today. Perhaps today's the day. So I'm not going to make that decision. I'm not going to do those things. I'm not going to be, it doesn't please God. It goes against the scripture. I'm not touching it. Verse 3, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Notice here in verse 3 that the, the, the pronoun changes, does it not? It goes to the they and to them. So this is speaking of those who are not believers. Paul was talking to the brethren, the believers in the beginning. Now we get to verse 3. He switches and says, they, they, not, not brothers, not brothers and sisters of the Lord, not those waiting and understanding that there's a return of Jesus Christ for the church. He's talking about those who do not believe that, who are not thinking about that, who don't even concern about it whatsoever. He says, they are dwelling in a time and a period of this peace and safety. Everything is so good. There's peace around the world. There's peace in my community. We have safety. We have security. Everything is going great. Life is good. Then sudden destruction, notice the word, sudden destruction comes upon them. And Paul uses a, a, a common uh, analogy here of labor pains upon a pregnant woman. See, this day will begin when world conditions appear so calm. Things seem to be finally settling down around the world rather than the chaos that we've been living for so many years. This peace will come with the signing of a seven-year uh, covenant or peace plan that was predicted in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Remember, the rapture has happened. Now the people who are non-believers who are left behind. They're sitting there looking for some calmness because there's been chaos that's taking place. Imagine right now in just your life alone that if you were raptured today, all of us, what kind of effect that would happen around those who know you that do not believe and are left behind. Imagine the chaos, the confusion, the sorrow, the sadness. Name the feeling. They're going to be looking for peace. They're going to look for safety around the world because there's such chaos going on. And it will be established. Why? Because there's a time the scripture talks about when there is going to be this, this period of bringing the whole world into, back into this safety because there's such 
un, you know, insecurity going on. There's going to be such, it needs peace because that's what's going to need to be happening because there's going to be such chaos in, in people's lives or left behind. But these non-Christians are going to look for peace and safety and then the Satan will bring it himself, the Antichrist, to come to be offering this this false peace and this false security. And how do you bring these Muslims and, and, and Jews and left behind kind of Christian residue of what's left of non-true Christians? How are you going to bring them all together in this peace and security to live? And I believe as we see in the scriptures, there's going to be a rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. That's what will bring the Jews to the table. Because the Antichrist will be in their eyes the Messiah they've been waiting for. So we see, as we can go, we don't have time to get into that in depth. But there will be a time where there will be peace and safety for those after the rapture. And that will be all of a sudden, as everything seems to be going so well for three and a half years. Everything so, seems so much in peace, so much security. And the temple's built. Everyone seems to be happy. And the Antichrist will walk into the rebuilt temple and will demand the Jews to worship him. That's when everything, a sudden destruction comes, will it not? Why? Because during this period of time, these non-Christians will be so blinded by Satan, they'll be lulled to sleep by such political and economic conditions, they will be just absolutely rudely awakened when this happens, when everything changes and destruction starts happening, when the wrath of God comes down upon these non-believers. They will hear these frightening verdict that Paul says here at the very end of verse 3, they shall not escape. It's too late. It's too late. This destruction, and, and even noted as we get to 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is not a complete annihilation of, this, of the place, but it will be broke, break up their peace and their security that, there was, that they thought they had by this outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, we call the Great Tribulation, and it will come suddenly. No signs must be fulfilled before his return for his church. And so that will happen quickly, and the rapture will happen, and then all of a sudden this need for peace and security around the world will need to be brought in. A man will come onto the scene, the Antichrist, and a false prophet, a religious leader, will help him to try to encourage everybody, let's make this all as one nice big peace plan and you can have your temple and Muslims you can continue to do what you're doing and Christians yeah you left behind kind of group but you know a very small group I'm hoping uh, but the road is narrow and so you know how many Christians will be left behind I don't know in name only but again not to get down that path too far the unsaved world will be enjoying a time of false peace and security just before this disastrous event takes place and the world is caught up by surprise because men will not hear God's word that's why they will be taken by surprise because they will not listen to God's word and they will not heed God's warnings 
Now, this is a common trade, is it not? God warned Noah that the flood was coming and that he told everyone was listening there was going to be a flood. I don't understand that because they didn't have rain at that time. But he said it anyway. The flood's coming. You're going to build this thing. And you're going to go in and I'm going to shut the door on you. And people still did not take the warning. We see then in 1 Peter 3.20. God warned Lot. And said, Lot, warn your family. I'm going to destroy this Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened? Noah only was able to save eight people, but Lot, he only was only bringing out just not even, no one would listen to him. His family wouldn't listen to him. Jesus warned his generation that Jerusalem would be destroyed, Luke 21, 19. And this warning enabled some believers to escape from that destruction, but many perished in the siege. The sudden coming. A time when many say peace and safety, peace and safety, we're in such a good place now, must be distinct from the coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 35. And let me give you some distinctions between the two, because many people get confused and believe they're one and the same. The coming of Jesus described in Matthew 24, verses 15 through 35, happens at a time of great global catastrophe, remember. When no one could possibly say that we have peace and security in the world. Like it will be during the period that Paul's talking about here. In the middle of the tribulation time frame. Comparing these passages, you can look and see there's two aspects of Jesus' second coming. Let me give you the three points. One aspect of his coming is at an unexpected hour. It will happen just like that. The other one in Matthew 24 describes that there was this... This, 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 you know, I wouldn't say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really very predicted that it will happen when you see the world looking the way it is right now. One is coming to a business as usual world when this all happens, whereas the other one is in the world is an absolute disaster when it happens. The one coming to meet him in the air, 1 Thessalonians, we learned last week, chapter 4, verses 16, 17. But the other one that's being described is him coming with his saints to the earth to bring judgment. These are two different things. Ephesians 2, 14, God says himself, he says himself is, is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. The only way you can have true peace is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because he broke down the division and made a way for you to have a relationship with God. To have to receive the peace, the Prince of Peace, in your life. That's the only way you can have true peace and security. Zephaniah. I know, it is one of the 66 books. I, I, when's the last time you've been in the book, book of Zephaniah? Chapter 1, verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter, and there the mighty men shall cry out. Isaiah even speaks of this. In Isaiah 13, 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the the Almighty. This is going to happen. 
And it's going to be happening just like labor pains. When a pregnant woman starts having labor pains, it just seems, what was that? I don't know. I just Maybe it's something I ate. Eventually, it's like, oh, that baby's really kicking. Eventually, you're, these are labor pains. The, 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 the Braxton Hicks has been, was it been there. It's kind of there, and you didn't even notice them. And then real contractions happen, and you cannot not notice them. This phrase, labor pains, suggests both inevitability and unexpectedness. Jesus used the same idea in Matthew 24, 8 when he spoke of the calamities preceding the end times as the beginning of sorrows, which literally is translated the beginning of labor pains. And the idea of both give you this point. The point is, is that the idea of giving birth to a new age because the church age is ended and the church the age of God reigning in his new kingdom is come. And the second thing it implies an increase of intensity and frequency when it comes to calamities. When you see these birth pains, you're going to see an increase in calamities, just things that you've just never and even if you have, they're so much more intense and more frequent and more severe and going in places that have never seen it before. And so he says, these things, keep an eye. You should see the, know these times and seasons. It's made it clear to us. Verse 4. But you, brethren, now he's talking to the brethren, the true believers, are not in darkness. Brethren, you're not in darkness. So that this day should overtake you as a thief. So he's reminding and encouraging and bringing great comfort to the believers. When we talk about the fact he's coming back, and taking and snatching out, and then all of a sudden the day of the Lord is going to set in, and the people who are left behind, those non-believers, are going to go through tremendous calamities and destruction, and it's going to be really bad. Now the first three, the first part is going to have the sense of peace and security, but I assure you, it's not going to last. It's only three and a half years, and then the rest of that seven-year period, it'll be just God's wrath coming down, and then we know in the scriptures we will be coming back with our Lord to reign on this earth but in that meantime he's saying you brothers don't don't get don't go get crazy on me here don't be living in fear don't get paralyzed by these things that you're reading and i'm telling you because you don't live in darkness and i'm just describing what will happen will happen to those who choose darkness who desires darkness oh is it not becoming very clear to my brothers and sisters there are people who absolutely desire darkness. Do you not see that playing out today so clear to you? Things that you and I in our, in our right mind would look and go, that is absolutely pure evil. And people celebrate it. When a state celebrates the death of babies is a love for darkness. It completely goes against God. Do you not think there's going to be calamities and consequences from God himself on the, those who are in darkness who choose that? I mean, that's, just, that's foolishness, is it not? To think we can just live in darkness and desire darkness and not think there's consequences? That's, that's crazy. 
But you get blinded. <laughs> you are crazy. <laughs> uh, that's a mental health issue that can be solved. Just, just surrender your life to Jesus Christ and be saved. That will solve your mental illness, as they call it. Anyway, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 5. You are all sons of light. You're not darkness. You're all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the of darkness. God has made you sons of light, sons of the day. You used to be living in the night. You used to desire and live in the darkness in the past. That's your past life. That's not who you are any longer. We are to live up to what God has made us as a child of God. We are sons and daughters of the light. Not darkness. You used to go and play in the night and get all kinds of drunk and go all kinds of crazy. But that's not who you are any longer. You don't desire those things as a child of God. You don't. The coming of Jesus will be a surprise for everyone because no one knows the day and the hour. But Christians who know the times and the seasons, it will not be a complete surprise to you and I. No one knows the exact hour a thief will come, but some live in a general preparation against those thieves. And those who are not in darkness who live as they are like the sons of light and sons of day, these are ready for the return of Jesus Christ. You live with the anticipation every day of his return. But if you're in darkness, Paul says, perhaps you're still caught up an unrepentant person in some of the sins that Paul talked about in the beginning of this letter. Because you've choose darkness, you love darkness, you love everything that has to do with darkness. All of those sins. If that's speaking of you, you need to repent. You need to recognize that it goes completely against God and you are considered darkness and not light. You will be left behind from the rapture. But you can repent. Why? Because you're not ready for God's return. You're not ready for Jesus to return. If you're unrepentant and you desire to habitually continue to live in sin, in darkness, Christians live a different sphere of life than non-Christians. It's the difference, as I said earlier, between day and night. It should be so clear in your life and how you speak and where you go and the things you think and, the, and how you treat people. It should be day and night. Romans 5, 9. Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God is not going to take his people, his bride, through the wrath of God. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my command to preserve, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That's a test we don't have to take. Why? 
Because Jesus already passed that test for us. He took the test for you. Praise God. Verse 6, therefore, let us not, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Romans 13, 11 says, Knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now your, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. We're one day closer for the Lord coming back for us. That should bring you great comfort in these times that we're dealing with. Oh, perhaps before the election. Wouldn't that be great? I'd be good with that. You know that. I hope you would too. Why? Because Paul says here, there's some that will sleep. He says, therefore, let us not sleep. Why? Because, because we do not belong to the night or nor of the darkness that we saw here in verse 5. Our spiritual condition should never be marked by sleep. Especially, spiritually speaking, we need to be active and aware to be watchful, he says, and to be sober. The word here, sleep, is a different word in the original language. This is not the sleep that we saw in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, talking about death. This sleep, this word here in the language, is actually one who is one of sluggishness, spiritual sluggishness, or a spiritual lethargic kind of life, or indifferent kind of life, or insensitivity to spiritual truths and spiritual realities on the part of believers. That's what he says, for those in darkness, they're going to be sluggish to spiritual things. Oh, I, I don't really want to listen to the teaching of the Word of God. I don't need to read. I don't need to pray. And please don't be talking about God when we're, we're supposed to be watching something else or doing something else or washing our cat or whatever ridiculous thing you can justify in your mind why you don't want to talk about the things of God because you're sluggish. You're indifferent. You're insensitive to the things of God. And that's a sign of someone who lives and is practicing darkness. Take it or leave it. I, I don't need to talk about God. I don't, I, I don't think I'm missing out on anything about talking about God. That's someone who lives in darkness. Even though you say you're a Christian, if that's how you think and feel, that is it's a sluggishness you need to be aware of. You need to wake up, he says. You need to be watchful. You need to be watching for the return of the seasons and the times because Jesus is coming back, and that should bring you comfort. It shouldn't cause you fear at all. At all. There shouldn't be a disappointment. Oh, God comes back today. Oh, I'll be so disappointed. Brothers and sisters, wake up. He says, be watchful and be sober. Sober means alert. You're in your right mind. Because what he's describing here, if you're not, is someone, is a, uh, your condition is being unsaved. But Christians, on the other hand, should be watchful and soberly waiting for the Lord's return. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 1, 7 says, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Titus 2.13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.28, as so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time and apart from sin for salvation. How about 2 Peter 3.12? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, bringing, uh, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And then we see here in verse 6, about self-control. Have self-control, my brothers and sisters. Be watchful. Be sober. Do not become, become sluggish in spiritual things. Do not become insensitive or, or some kind of this state of uh, indifference kind of a state. Because if you do and you're finding yourself creeping back there, then something of this world or something of the flesh has gripped you. Take note, ask the Lord, Lord, is there something that's consuming my mind that's causing me to become sluggish toward you, indifference toward you and the truth of God? Bring them to light because I want to repent of those and I'm going to change the way I think about those things and get rid of them, no touchy. And then you will find you will be renewed as a brother as a sister in Christ. You will be renewed. You will no longer be asleep when it comes to spiritual things. Sober does not mean humorless. I don't mean that at all. You're so stoic and religious and proper. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about being alert and calm. To live with your eyes open. Because you can keep your eyes open. You're not drunk. When someone knows the absolute value of Jesus returning, you will not get wrapped up in the things of this world. You'll keep a light touch. And so many times you can become intoxicated by things of entertainment and keeping busy stuff and fun stuff and go, 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 that you become no longer sober but intoxicated by the things what this world can offer you and really take your eyes off the fact that God can return. Paul here is commanding them to be in sobriety. Not someone to squish everyone's joy or to go around and squish any Christian's enthusiasm or excitement for Jesus, but actually promoting it with them and actually being part of it and having fun with it. Why? Because Paul himself was a very enthusiastic follower of Jesus Christ. He was accused by the religious radicals for his zeal, for his love for Jesus. Even the Roman official Festus thought Paul was a madman. And we see that in Acts 26, 24. The Corinthians thought he was beside himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 13. This man was on fire for Jesus. Going everywhere, anywhere the Lord was leading him. Boldly doing what he needed to do. He was having fun at the same time he was being so persecuted 
to the point of death that did not stop him of having the joy for his Lord. In verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. See, the opposite of spiritual watchfulness is spiritual sleep. The opposite of spiritual sobriety or seriousness about the things of God is the spirit of drunkenness. You could care less. I just feel like, you know, I feel good, but I'm going out. We must be watchful and we must be sober of the times we live in. Why? Because as the scripture shows, the seasons and the times are really in line with the scripture. If you're not watching the Middle East conflicts and what's happening with Russia and Iran and Syria and Libya, all the, all the nations that will come against Israel. I don't know if you're, if you're not watching these kinds of things and seeing how Ezekiel 37 and 38, we're, 38 is right there, my brothers. If you haven't read Ezekiel 38 and recently, you should. I encourage you to read Ezekiel 37, 38, 39. We're living that out in our days. Watch the news just for that alone. See, unbelievers are neither awake nor alert to these spiritual realities that Paul's talking about here. They're either they're asleep or controlled by forces outside themselves, like those who are drunk and they're not in their right mind. Verse 8: But let us who are of the day of sober, of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul says, okay, this is what the unbelievers look like. This is how they're behaving. This is how they live. This is how they desire. But let me tell you and remind you, my brothers and sisters, why you have great comfort as a Christian. Because we're going to, who are part of the day, the day when we're going to be with Christ, when this all is happening, craziness on this earth, you're not going to be here. And because you're part of that, you're going to be sober and putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of the hope of salvation. You see the trinity here, right? Faith, hope, and love. We see this all played out. He mentions it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, I believe. And he brought it up in the beginning of the letter, and now he's bringing this, this trinity, as we sometimes refer to it as the faith, love, and hope trinity here in describing our armor or our protection of against these evil things that are going on in this world we're standing on the very edge of a great event called the rapture we're waiting for that moment to happen we're right there waiting for the door to open are you are you waiting every day with a possible just a hope that he's coming back for you today? That sudden transformation of your life into the presence of the Lord? For you as a believer, it'll be a sudden, incredible moment. But for an unbeliever, that sudden moment that we call the rapture will bring such destruction for them. But you and I must do our part. Notice what Paul says here. You're part of that day. 
that great moment, that, that moment that will happen. You need to prepare yourself. And how do you prepare yourself but putting on armor? What armor is that? Faith, love, and hope. We must have self-control. We must put those on daily. Putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet of the hope of salvation, Paul is using here as an imagery of a soldier armor putting around who's put the armor on and is watchful for the enemy to come to try to take you out to try to stop you to keep your eyes on Jesus he says be watchful because as a soldier is a good in a stance they'll put their armor on they'll be watchful and they're watching at all times what's happening around them and they'll be sober they'll be in their right mind they'll be equipped and when you compare this spiritual armor with the when we see it in Ephesians 6, they're not exactly in correlation, but Paul is using that same imagery just to get you and I's attention of what it means you must put this on every day to protect you. Faith and love are represented by a breastplate because the breastplate covers the what? The heart. It covers you from the neck to the waist. It covers all your vital organs. You must keep the faith every day. You must keep love on every day. It must be something you focus on as an armor because that is what's going to protect you because people are going to challenge your faith. People are going to challenge your love. So you must put that on as a breastplate, as armor to protect you in these end days. No Christian is equipped to live a Christian life without faith and love. What do we put our faith in? Faith in God. We must put our faith in God protects our inward person, our heart. And the love that we put on protects the people on the outward side. These two graces cannot be separated. Faith and love go together. You cannot separate. If one believes in God, he also loves other people. When you see someone who says, I don't love people, I don't care about people, I only care about me, then you, you must question your faith in God. Because they go hand to hand. 1 Timothy 1.5, he speaks of love. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. See, they go together. These are attitudes equip Christians to stand ready for the rapture. You have a faith in God, you love people, you are right there prepared for the rapture to take place. With great anticipation. But he also says the hope of salvation. The hope, of, the, the hope that salvation actually gives you and I. I'm saved. I'm not going to be left behind. I've got a guarantee. He already purchased a ticket for me. I received that ticket. I'm going home. So I have the hope of salvation because it's a guarantee for me. It's, 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 it's like a helmet. It protects what? My mind. It protects the way I think of what is going on every single time. Because I and you will be 
attacked in your mind by the enemy. So you must remember you have the hope of salvation. You're saved. You're going home. No one can separate you from the love of God. And when the enemy tries to trick you and tell you something differently, you go back to, and say, no. I remember the day of my salvation. I remember when I surrendered my life to Christ. And I surrender it every day. I desire more of him. Every day. So the helmet of salvation protects from the attacks on your mind. And you must put that on. These are absolutely essential. The helmet is essential. The breastplate is essential to wear every day as a Christian. Why? Because the salvation, we, we look forward to the deliverance from the wrath to come. When the Lord returns, it's, it's going to be as clear as can be in the context as we see in the scripture here. And that's where we put our hope in. Because our hope is not some useless sense of wishful thinking like many people do. But it's an absolute confidence and expectation of God's hand in the future. God is taking me out of here before he brings wrath himself upon this earth. Some people say, well, I've been going through wrath already. You know, I had, I had, a, I had an earthquake hit me. Or the, 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 whatever name it is now that comes in from the water and, and brings water flooding and all that. People think that's the wrath of God. But it's not the wrath of God. It rains on the just and the unjust. But as a believer, when God actually does the judgment, his bride will not be here. We'll be raptured already. And the day of the Lord, which is the wrath of God, will come upon the, the, those non-believers. That is our hope. That is our guarantee. We will not be here. And that's why we must Put on the breastplate. We must put on the helmet. The unsaved, they fix their minds on the things of this world and the things that, that are going to bring absolutely no hope. It will be actually brings them with, they, they prefer, and we see in Ephesians 2.12, they are without hope. As a non-believer, you do not have hope. You have nothing but questions and uncertainty of your future. This is explains why the unsaved, the non-believers, why they choose to live what they do. I eat, they drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Because that's all they have in, in their hope in their life. Having the next drink, having the next great fellowship around the bar, next Barbie with a little beer and bud, and, and we're just going to eat. We're going to drink. We're going to be merry. We're going to have a great time because we're just going to die anyway. That is someone who has no hope. They just don't even probably have come to that realization yet. But as Christians, we know what the scripture says. We do not keep our eyes on the things of this world. 
We don't hold our hope into the things of this world. As believers, our attention's on things above, is it not? Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3. I highly recommend you go back and read that today with a good cup of coffee. And let's wrap up here. Verses, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Did you underline that, highlight that, circle that, and tell anyone who is a post-tribber, read that verse 9 for me. Have them read it out loud. For God did not appoint us to wrath. I think it's really childlike simplicity, is it not? I, I, I'm not confused by this. I don't know why people are confused by this subject matter. Because God made it very clear to us. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. See, before we had the hope of salvation in our life, we had an appointment to wrath. We were on the path to wrath of God. And then you accepted salvation. You accepted the free gift. You surrendered your life to Jesus and you became saved, born again, transformed. And that path, immediately that track changed. And now you're no longer on the path of wrath of God but of salvation. We are no longer having an appointment to wrath, but now to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is important to understand that Paul means the wrath of God, not the wrath of, of, of just the natural things that are happening around us. But we've been, we are saved from the world, we're saved from the flesh, we're saved from the devil. But first and foremost, we are rescued from the wrath of God. We're rescued. We were rescued from a wrath that we deserve to experience. Because we lived against God. But when you look here, Paul's writing here is the letter that God has given him in the context. Believers are rescued from the wrath of God. An appointment. Notice that. You were appointed us. God has appointed us not to receive wrath. Isn't that, isn't that a great when you, I, I was pondering this week, that God called and said, you have an appointment with me. I'm going to keep that appointment. You know, it's not one of those appointments, ah, I don't feel like going to the appointment. Or, I don't care if I'm 10 minutes late. <laughs> I want to be early. I don't want no question. I'm going to meet that appointment that he has set for me. Our appointment to wrath was appointed to us two ways. First, because of what Adam did to us and the whole human race. We became appointed to wrath. We see that in Romans 5, verses 14 through 19. And the second way we were appointed to wrath was because of our own sin. Our own, our own ways that we decided to live against God our whole life. 
even if we didn't really think we were living against God, we were still living against God. And that would have brought an appointment to wrath. But what happened? What happened was is that Jesus died on the cross for you. He stood in our place in our appointment to wrath. And reschedules us for an appointment to obtain salvation. He kept that appointment to wrath. And instead gave you and I the appointment of salvation. That as believers, we will think we are appointed to wrath, but no, we're not. We are now to, we're going to show up to this, this, this thought of us showing up to an appointment that we should be keeping, but God said, no, 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 this is not your appointment time. Your appointment is completely different. Jesus took that appointment time. You have a new appointment. Because, why? Because he died for you. Right there in verse 10, who died for us. Jesus died for us. He was not killed, technically. He died in our place. Why? Why do I make that? Because he laid down his own life for you. No one took his life. Being killed, someone took your life. When you die, as he did, he gave up his spirit. He was willing for you to keep that. Why? Because he died as a substitute for you. He took your appointment of wrath. How can you not love someone who just took your appointment of wrath? How could you not celebrate and rejoice in him each and every day? So God, or Paul here used Paul to put two interesting ideas side by side here. Appoint and obtain. Why is that important? Because God, in God's sovereignty, obtain is a word that emphasizes human effort. I should say that again. A point emphasizes God's sovereignty, but in to obtain is a word that is emphasizes human effort. So together, when you look at these appoint, uh, appoint and obtain, we see the full scope of salvation involves both divine initiative and human response or effort. God has appointed us not to wrath, but you are to, able to obtain salvation. The question is, have you received, have you accepted that free gift of salvation? you have then you're born again you're saved you're a child of God and you will not experience the appointment of wrath therefore verse 11 this should be great comfort for you therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing Paul again tells us not to take comfort but to give comfort Christians are to have a heart to comfort one another. Then all will be comforted. Give away comfort. Give away. Edify. Give it away. Edify means to build up. To encourage. We're to build up other Christians. And when we build up other Christians, God will edify us. 
And that's why he says in the local church here in the Thessalonica, Thessalonica area here, the Thessalonian believers, this local church, are, are to be active participants in the church and not passive spectators coming to church. And you're to be active. That means active in comforting one another by telling them Jesus is returning soon. Building them up in the faith. Encouraging with the word of God. Pray for them. That is an active participant in the church. You don't come and leave and say nothing to nobody. That is not an active participant in the church. God says in the word we're to be active participants. Involved in the people's lives. Edifying them and encouraging them. and Bringing comfort with the words of God. The fact that we meet, the fact that we are having this great anticipation of meeting our loved ones again who have gone before us who are saved should bring great joy for you. The fact that we will meet our loved ones again and forever be with the Lord is a source of encouragement. Why would we not encourage others in the faith like that? The fact that we will not endure God's wrath, the appointment of wrath during the day of the Lord is another source of encouragement we need to remind people of. And both of these facts should bring great comfort to you as a believer. That you're going to see your loved ones gone before you in heaven. That the fact that we're not going to go through the tribulation should be great comfort to you to live for God. But he says something at the very end of verse 11. He says, and just as you also are doing. So it's not like the believers here in this church were not already doing that. And I'm not saying that you are not already doing that. You are doing that. We have been doing that. But Paul is encouraging them, and it should encourage us as well, that we should continue to do that. Why? Because the time is short. The Lord is coming back for us. Soon very soon so let us encourage and edify and and be part of a local church get involved get back in touch with people and encourage them in their walk with Christ to reference back to the fact that Jesus is returning the fact that they will see loved ones the fact that they will not be meeting appointment of wrath but appointment of salvation this is just an incredible hope that you can be pouring into people's lives especially in the times that we lived in because they're getting darker and darker and darker around us.